My name's Chris, and I'm one of the pastors here. We're in the third week of a four-week series called Enjoying God, um, Four Truths That Change Everything. And we've been walking through the study, which is, which is really a study in God's attributes. And we've, we're engaging this idea of who God is from a 30,000-foot view, bringing it down to, to street level because of this one thing. We all know stuff about God in our heads that we really don't believe. We know stuff about God that we really don't believe. Um, Romans 15, 13 says this. I, this is a verse that I've been, I've been praying over my kids at night when I, when I bless them before they go to bed. Rome, this is Paul at the end of Romans. says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. We see here that joy and peace is intricately linked with believing. Joy and peace comes from believing what God has said about himself. Believing that there will be hope when we believe in Christ. Now, if that's true, then the converse is also true. If we do not believe, and when I say believe, I'm not referring to just right doctrine, but though that's part of it. When I say believe, I mean do we really with our hearts believe it? If we don't believe it, then we'll see that our lives won't be filled with joy. It won't be filled with peace. So we can, we can look at our lives and say, where are the areas where I'm not experiencing joy, or I'm not experiencing peace? And we can tie that directly to something that we're not believing that is true about God. That's what we've been studying over these past couple weeks, and we're going we're gonna to get into the same idea today. If this is so, if our joy and our peace is directly tied to what we believe about God, we can see that if we're honest, that we are the most unbelieving believers. Because we don't display joy all the time. We don't display peace all the time. In fact, even as I say those words, you're probably thinking of areas, gosh, you know, I don't really have peace because of this or that. Because of this, I want to look at this quote by A.W. Tozer that we've been looking at over and over again. He says this, The gravest question before us is always God himself. And the most pretentious fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be. Think about this. Our desires, our choices, our motives, all of these display what in the depths of our hearts we believe God to be. And we see very quickly that we're unbelieving believers. But I want us to see this. I want us to see this too. That unbelief, not believing something about God, knowing that that in itself is the beginning of the cause of our negative emotions, what we experience, our lack of joy, this should encourage us. Because it shows us so clearly and so plainly that, that we cannot recover ourselves, we cannot redeem ourselves, we cannot help ourselves, we cannot get ourselves out of depression, out of despair, out of our troubles, by our own merit. It shows so clearly that the answers are not in us. The answers to all of our problems and all of our struggles are found in looking to God himself. That should encourage us. And that is what we're going to continue to do Today We've been looking at, at these four big categories of God's attributes coming from Psalm 145. 
is that God is great. God is glorious. God is good. And God is gracious. We see that here in Psalm 145. Now, I can't tell you how helped I have been by thinking about all of God is in these two, these two main categories of God is great and God is good. I challenge you to think about anything that we know about God from Scripture and that you know about, about God from your experience. I think, does it, does it not fit in the idea that God is great and God is good? And then also that part of God's greatness is his glory and what he displays about his perfections. And we're going to see next week that part of his goodness is actually his grace. And now what are the conclusions that we've been drawing from these big things? Um, let's look here at some of these conclusions that we've been drawing over the last couple of weeks. First of all, we've been enjoying God's greatness. And we saw that because God is great, we do not have to be in control. So we spent some time talking about the greatness of God, how he cannot be fully known, and no matter how hard we try, he is incomprehensible. He is so large and so great that God knows everything. We can fool our teachers, we can fool our parents, we can fool everyone around us, even our best friends, but we cannot fool God because God knows everything. He, God is powerful. He sits above the circle of the earth, the scripture says, and all power belongs to him. He is so great and so powerful that all the nations and all the things that they can do with all their armies and all their kings are nothing before him. He has all power in the universe, and he never gets tired. Every night, God runs the world completely fine while a whole hemisphere goes to sleep. He never gets tired. God is immense. He measures the vastness of space, not with light years, not with, not with zeros upon zeros upon zeros, but, but the distance between his thumb and his finger and his pinky. He is so immense. We saw how God is great. So therefore, we don't have to be in control of our lives. In fact, we dispose the myth that we really are in control of our lives. We also then enjoyed God's glory so we don't have to fear others. We realized last week how much we are riddled with the fear of man and how much we try to please others with our actions and with our lives and what we do and so that we can receive what we need for our life from other people. That's the condition of our souls. That's the condition of our hearts. That's what we do. We are naturally people pleasers because we look to other people to provide needs that only God was meant to fill. But as we see God as glorious and we see his goodness and his glory and his holiness and we fear him, the fear of others dissipates when compared to the fear of God. We saw that last week. This week, we're going to enjoy God's goodness to the end that we don't have to look anywhere else. We don't have to look elsewhere. Just so you know, this series, the idea for the series came from a book called You Can Change. And the, those, those books are on sale in the foyer. Um, you can get one for $10. Just put it in the box there. I really encourage you to get this book and follow along with us as we read. It's fantastic, and it, and it unpacks so much of what we've been going on here um, over the last couple weeks and what we'll do next week. Again, we want to study God from someone who doesn't know facts about God, but from someone that we know is actually enjoying him. It's not so important. It's not the, the, the end of knowing God is not that we just know stuff about him, but so that we would know him to the extent that he's actually enjoyable. So we're going to look at David. 
one, another one of his psalms to, to unpack his heart and see what is going on in the heart and the mind of this guy who is enjoying God. Let's look at this, Psalm 16. This is David prays this, and then he confesses some things about his relationship with God. He says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names upon my lips. Verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In, In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. And in your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What a cacophony of praise and joy expressed from this heart that is contemplating the goodness of God. Let's, let's look back at verse 1. It says, Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. And David confesses, I have no good apart from God. Now, look at what he, he doesn't say. He doesn't say here that the Lord is good. He's not saying here, though that's true, he's not saying that the Lord has been good to him or that God has given him good things. All, though all that is true, he's saying specifically that, but, but that the Lord is his good. Now, I want to take a step back and think about this idea of God's goodness rightly. We think about it in two ways. One, that God is necessarily good in himself. Just like we've looked at how he's gracious, or I'm sorry, that he's great and that he is, he is glorious, he's good in himself. And we're going to look at that a little bit later on. But, but think for a moment what it would be like if God was as great as I just explained and he is as glorious and holy as he is and if he were not good. Imagine how terrified we should be that God is sovereign and completely in control of every atom in the universe, and that he is a holy God who cannot, who cannot abide sin and transgression and things that are not holy. Imagine if that God was not good to us, what that would be like. Now, there's a real sense in that God is good, and we are so thankful, and that is something that we ascribe to God being good. But there's another sense that God is good. The second one is more like this. When something is beautiful or something that tastes really good or it's delightful or pleasing, Rebecca, when I came home the other day, was making mango frozen yogurt. We've been getting into making frozen yogurt, right, with one of those, you know, things you put in the freezer and the thing turns around, it freezes stuff, you put fruit in it and all that. She's been experimenting with all these different things and I 
came home one day after work, and I came into the kitchen, and she whipped open the freezer and, and said, I made mango frozen yogurt. And I, I mean, I hadn't eaten anything hardly all day, so I just scooped that thing up, and it was awesome. I mean, it melted in my mouth. It was, it was incredible. It had coconut cream in it. It had maple sugar in it. It had mango puree in it, and that, like, really cool Greek, Greek light yogurt. I mean, yeah, you're nodding your head. All right, this is good stuff, right? What did I say? I said, hmm, this is good, all right? That's where I want us to get in our understanding today of God is good. It's one thing to know he is good, but it's another thing for him to truly believe that he's good and to actually experience him as being our good. Do you see that? Do you see the progression from knowing stuff that makes God good to then experiencing and go to the point where we would, in from the depths of our hearts, say, yes, I know that God is good. Now, look at it, if you look back at the psalm that I just read, if, if you're looking at it in your Bible, Psalm 16, you, you see these emotions that David's expressing from having received God, not just good in, its, good in himself, but actually having tasted experienced the goodness of God in his heart. He says his heart is glad, that his whole being rejoices, that he has fullness of joy, and he experiences pleasures that will last forever. Man. We see that his heart has been so captivated by God that he reacts in two ways. One, it says that he delights in God's people. It's the first thing he says. He says, he said, the Lord is my good, therefore I delight in your people. Think about that for a second. One of the first responses that the grace of God has in our hearts, once we have received gladness and joy, having been reconciled to him, is that we immediately turn, just like Jason just said on the video, people don't suck anymore, I actually care about them. I actually want to be with them. That is a fruit of God's grace, an immediate fruit of someone experiencing the goodness of God and delighting in God that they immediately turn in now, and now they can delight in God's people. So where being with them is not a chore, where you're actually looking forward to being in their company. Think about that as you consider being a part of one of our communities. if, if, If you're struggling with that idea, what is it that we're not delighting in about God that we cannot delight in his people to the extent that we would actually share our lives with them? It's one thing to share an hour and a half or two hours on a Sunday morning with someone, but to actually share life and do life together, you have to be delighting in God in order to put up with people. But it's an immediate fruit of, God, of David delighting in God. The second thing, it says that he refuses to worship other gods. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply, he says in verse 4. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, or I will not take their name on my lips. Now, okay, let's get our heads for just a minute into, into you know, 6,000 years ago, all right, worshiping pagan idols. In the Old Testament, it's very clear about how, how this happens. Why would somebody... Make a sacrifice to an idol, 
to a god to, 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 and actually deal with their blood and, and drink it. It's a grotesque thing. Why would someone actually drink an animal sacrifice's blood in front of, to please a god? That's nasty. But we see here that David is refusing, not to, to, refusing to do that, not, not because it's gross, but because he doesn't need to. He doesn't, he doesn't need to rely on other things. He doesn't need to look elsewhere because he is so enthralled with God's goodness and God is his good. He doesn't need to go anywhere else. But look at this. The, the whole thing behind the, the, the worshiping of idols was that it was believed that, that every region of the country was, was literally um, ruled by a certain deity. And, so if, and there was a particular cult called Baal worship. And for you, and this God of Baal would actually be in control of all the fertility, of all the produce, of all the things that happen in a certain area. So if you wanted to have kids, if you wanted, to, if you wanted your livestock to have kids, if you wanted your crops to do well, if you wanted to have food next year, you better do something to appease and to please this local deity that reigned over the rain and the dryness and all the things that, need to have, that can affect what you need every single day. Now, why on earth did this, did this impact Israel, the people of God, to the point where David would say, I will not go do that. Obviously, that means that people in Israel were continuing to believe in Yahweh, their God, the God of deliverance, the God of power, the God of miracles. I mean, think about, I mean, splitting the Red Sea. Think about, you know, him destroying armies. Think about God doing all these big, miraculous things but yet Israel was still tempted and still often sacrificed these local deities to make sure things were really going to go okay on a, granule, on a granule level, on a street level. So it was like they would believe in God up here, but yet to really get their needs met, they wouldn't trust Yahweh. They would trust in these local gods. Are we any different than that? We believe that God is great, God is glorious, God is good. But yet, do we really go to him for our everyday needs? Do we really look at the God that we know is so great, but yet do we really trust him? Do we really find him enjoyable? Do we really find him satisfying? Or do we still go after other things? Martin Luther said this, said about this idea. He said, a God is whatever we expect to provide all good and in which we take refuge in all distress. Whatever you set your heart on and put your trust in, that, I tell you, is your true God. Now, we don't make sacrifices anymore, but we do give our best energy, we give our emotion and our time and our money to those things that we think are going to meet our needs. We make sacrifices to God's all the time. Now, let's get deeper into David's heart to see how understanding and experiencing the goodness of God can free us, free us from the, the felt need to look elsewhere other than God. He says, in effect, God is my good. He is my portion. He maintains my life. He doesn't need to look anywhere else. But let's look in the New Testament, see what Paul has to say about this. One of the most succinct and powerful statements about the effect of the goodness of God on our souls 
is also found in Paul's letter to Titus. We just finished up a series on this. And I, I want to go back to one of the verses there and, and show, show this how clearly it shows how God's grace works in our heart to change us. Titus 2.11 and 12 says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Look at that. It's the grace of God that trains us to deny godliness. It doesn't say the commands. It doesn't say the ordinance of God. It says, while those are so important in exposing our sin, it doesn't say willpower. It says, the grace of God is what trains us to deny ungodliness and worldly passions. Look at this. Desire in itself. Let's look at this word, worldly passions. Let's see how it's related to the gods that we need and we serve. Desire is not a bad thing. God created us to have passionate desire. And the things that we desire are not bad in themselves. God created everything good for us to enjoy. But it's when we desire them over and against God himself, they become our God and replace him. And as David warned, as David warned, the sorrows of those who run after other gods will be multiplied. So the good news is that the grace of God causes us to deny Cause us to deny and renounce a life that does not reflect the glory of God and does not enjoy Him. Let's look, let's look deeper in, into how this works. We need to unpack for a little bit what's going on in our souls when we make choices, when we decide to do what we do, when, we, when, when, we, when our wills take over and we make choices about life and where we spend our money, where we spend our time, and what we do. What's going on in our hearts? Let's look back at Adam and Eve and see where sin entered the world and what, and what was going on there. We see that, that God put Adam and Eve in a perfect garden, gave them perfect food, provided perfectly for everyone in their needs. But we see that, we see that the Eve was very quickly tempted to forget the goodness and the provision and the grace of God she was so quick to, to, to not take advantage of all the things that God had given her and Adam to enjoy. And so what happens? We see that, that, that's, that, that they were tempted to eat of the one tree that God had said they should not eat from. See, God wanted them to trust and rely on him alone. And he said, you can enjoy everything in the garden except for this one particular tree that would give you the knowledge of good and evil. See, God wanted them to be content in the knowledge of him. He wanted Adam and Eve to be content in himself. He says, so you can eat everything except for this one tree. When you eat of it, you'll have the knowledge of good and evil, and and you'll be independent. This is what it said. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave to her husband who was with her and ate. Why did she do what she did? The fruit was good, delightful, and desirable. It was good. It was a delight to the eyes, and it was desirable. Here's what we can learn from this. We will always choose 
that which is perceived by us to be the most good, to be the most desirable, and to be the most delightful. We will always choose to do what brings us the most good, brings us the most delight, and what is most desirous to us. No matter what it is, we cannot choose otherwise. This is where Jonathan Edwards reflecting on this is so helpful. He says, The choice of the mind never departs from that which at the time appears most agreeable and pleasing. All things considered. We cannot choose and do otherwise. Our wills will always do what they were created to do. A man never wills anything contrary to his desires. Now, we may say that we want something and do something else, but our words are not in sync with what we really perceive to be the best. Our words are not in sync what we really in our hearts believe the best good and to be the most beautiful. We will always go after what we think is like that. Our wills are not as free as we think, folks. (laughs) We are only free to choose which we perceive as best. That means we never stumble into sin. (laughs) You know that we never accidentally sin? You know, we might say that, you know, oh, yeah, I I stumbled, I I, I fell into that temptation. Like you, you know, like you were walking fine and you stepped stepped in a hole and you fell over or kicked a rock and fell over. That's not how we deal with sin. We run headlong to do whatever we think is best for us in that moment. So much so that we have a very strong word in our language for those that try to to curb their behavior against their desires. We call that insane. We call that absolutely insane. And we look insane when we try to, to not do what we really want to do. We get hypnotized so we'll stop smoking. We take diet pills to make our body feel full when it's really hungry. We will staple our stomachs or remove our stomachs to think that we really don't need food as much as we want it. We'll do all these things to try to curb our behavior and not do anything to change what we think is beautiful and good. My kids are really into reading about Greek mythology. And I want to share with you this story that just captured capture the essence of this so well. If you're into Greek mythology, then, then, then you may know the story and you'll know some of these characters. I don't know any of them really, but my, my six-year-old does. So, Ulysses and his men, hey, Ulysses and his men had to, had to sail past this infamous island of the Sirens. All right? You may have heard of the Sirens. They were literally these beautiful cannibalistic creatures that had voices that were so beautiful, so seductive, so compelling that any man that would hear their voices would literally steer their ships toward the island that they lived on and the ships would crash into the island on the rocks and then they would be lunch or dinner or whatever meal was prepared for them. So that's the way the story goes. Now, but Ulysses was on his way back from sacking Troy or getting Helen or who, whoever it is, was on his way back home after like 100 years, right? So, and he knows he's got to go past this island with the sirens. So what does he do? This is fascinating. He first of all sticks wax in the ears of all of his men. And, but then he says, I have a different plan for myself. I want you to strap me 
to the mast of the ship with ropes. And no matter what I say or what I do or what I ask you to do, do not obey me and do not turn toward the, turn, turn toward the island. So he is strapped up and they're heading past the He just said, men, roar for your, row for your lives or whatever they were doing. Yet he wants to hear the music. Well, you know what happened. He literally heard the music and he was captivated. He was compelled. He was screaming to the guys. In fact, it says in one of the stories that the sirens actually took form of his wife. He was going to go see. It was calling him to, to, to the island. Well, he made it simply because he was strapped to the mast. He was able to withstand the temptation of the sirens. Now, do we do that same thing? With our willpower, with removing our temptations from us? Do we, through, through, through legalism and trying to change our behavior, resist sin in the same way? Tying ourselves to a mast with rules and regulations that, 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 that simply bother our behavior but never really get to what we want, never really get to our affections? I know it's so common for us to do the same thing because I, I, I know for me, when I think about the grace of God and all of his goodness, I kind of put it in one category. This is how God has reconciled me to himself. This is what God's grace has done for me. He did for me what I could not do for myself. But then when I think about change and I think about becoming Christ-like and I think about becoming a better person, I, I don't think about the grace of God. I, I, I think about what I can do to improve myself. I think about what I can do to make up for what I did wrong over here. And I get about changing my behavior, changing what I look on the outside, becoming a good and better person on the outside, but yet staying corrupt and legalistic and joyless on the inside. We're just like Ulysses. Now, I was, in fact, this, this, this hit me so clearly in when, I was, when I was in college. I'd first become a Christian. And, you know, it was, you know, it's one of those things where you, you, you just want to do anything you can to stop sinning like you used to sin. Right? I actually, in pieces of paper, wrote the word holy and put it over my dorm room, right? <laughs> Thinking that me putting the word holy above my door would actually affect what I did when I was in my dorm room. I thought that was funny. I was, I was a crazy college student, right? I mean, literally, I put holy on my room thinking that that would change what I did in my room. It would change my thoughts and my actions and my behavior. Guess what? It didn't. In fact, it got worse when I, after I put holy across the doorposts. Someone asked me this this week, kind of bemoaning coming out of this, this season of just just kind of indulgent sin. He, he, he asked me this week, he said, Chris, what on earth can I do to stop relying on myself? What on earth can I do? How can I stop trusting myself? How, how can I stop indulging my desires in the wrong way? And after thinking through this, I said, you know what? You can't stop relying on yourself. You can't. Because you think you and your decisions and your desires and what you want are the best for you. You think you're smarter than God. There's no way for you to stop trusting in yourself because you don't really see that what you're doing is bad or wrong. What you think you can do for yourself, you actually see as your highest good. <laughs> Nothing's going to change. 
You can try to deny yourself all day long, but nothing is going to change because you really do think that you have, you have to love yourself and what you want to do with your life is the best. Richard Baxter said this, the will never desires evil as evil, but always as something that is seemingly good. Now look, look, look back at, at Titus here. He says that the grace of God trains us to renounce Change us to renounce ungodliness and, and worldly desires. You know, the, the, the idea here is actually, the word there is actually means to sober up. That the grace of God actually encourages you to be sober about what you're desiring. Think about it this way. When, when we've had too much to drink, we exaggerate. Our perception is thrown off. That joke was just not that funny. That girl was not that cute. That guy is just not that handsome, right? That, our perception of reality is completely thwarted. That's the idea here. The grace of God causes us to sober up because we, because we see what we're desiring and what we're going after and the passing pleasure that sin brings in comparison to who God is in his grace. It is when we see the overwhelming goodness and satisfaction that God brings over and against the little things that we try to please ourselves with that we are then trained to deny those things. The only way, the only way to desire God more and to reject worldly passions and desires is to see God as bigger and to see God as better than what we desire. And this is what grace does. Now, how does this miracle happen to us? How does this miracle of seeing God in his fullness and his glory, how does that happen? Because I cannot just tell you, okay, here's the idea, guys. You should desire God more than anything else. All right, let's go do it. That will actually cause us to be more condemned and more frustrated. It's not just good enough to actually just know the principle. I should be desiring God. I should be desiring God. Desire God, desire God. Kind of like Bill Murray in the beginning of What About Bob? He said, I'm wonderful, I'm okay, I'm good, I'm wonderful, I'm okay, I'm good. Okay, that doesn't ever help. Y'all ever seen that movie? Okay, all right, I didn't know if I was just putting on a performance up here. Okay, the, those things don't help us. We have to see that God is actually great. We have to see it. We have to see that God is glorious and good and that he is our greatest good because he appeals to us as most desirable. Now, I want to encourage us in this pursuit, first of all, with the fact that God is incredibly invested in you enjoying him. In fact, let's think about it this way. God displays his glory not just in reveal, like we said last week, God displays his glory not just in showing us his perfections, but actually in us receiving joy and delighting in those perfections. So God manifests his glory in these two ways. Edwards said this, this really helped me. He said, God glorifies himself 
I'll read it up here in two ways. By peering to our understanding first, knowing that God is good in himself, but yet also in communicating himself to our hearts and, and our rejoicing and delighting and enjoying in his manifestations, God is glorified not only by his glory being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. And when those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. As we ask God to show us his glory and to open up our eyes of our hearts to perceive him, we have to know that he is incredibly interested in glorifying himself through our joy. Him being the ultimate good of the universe, he wants to do good to all by displaying himself. And he displays himself best when he is perceived as good and glorious in his people. It's when we choose him above and against every other thing that God gets most satisfaction and joy in himself and when he brings the most glory to himself and we have the most joy and satisfaction in him. It's all related. God is incredibly active in your life for you to have joy in him. We've got to believe that. That verse helps us. Now, remember too, there's a difference between understanding, understanding and really tasting. David in another psalm said, taste and see that the Lord is good. Those who take refuge in him will be blessed. Taste and see. Now, there's a difference again. Think about the idea of, of honey. There is a difference between knowing that honey is sweet, but yet being able to taste and sense its sweetness. In the same way, in the same way there's a difference between being a person is beautiful and having a sense of that beauty. The former rests only in the head, but in the heart is concerned in the latter. And it necessarily feels pleasure just in the apprehension. We need God to show himself to us. Let's look at Moses and how he pursued this with God. If we're honest, we need a miracle. We need a miracle because our hearts are hard, our eyes are dull. And when we read this, and when we read the Word, and we read the Bible, when God reveals, when God is showing us His Word, we have to have the Holy Spirit to help us to see him in his goodness and his glory. We need a miracle, folks. We need God to do what only God can do, and that's make himself real to us. Not just, not just true, but make himself real. Let's look at how he did this for, for Moses. Moses said, show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. We see here that, the, the God, that Moses approaches God and says, I know that I have found favor with you. I know that I belong to you. But I want to see you. Just having your favor and being reconciled to you is not enough. I want to see you. And so we see that he is, God says, yes, I will let you see me. And I'm going to let all my goodness pass before you. Now look at how it does that. It says that the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. 
keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, who will by, but will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God revealed himself in his word to Moses. God, Moses act, asked to see God's glory, and you know how God chose to show him his glory? Was to give him his word was to teach him about himself, about his name, what his name meant, what his goodness was like. And we see that the response of Moses was that he quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Paul declares in Romans that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. We see no greater display of God's glory and his goodness in his name, than in the gospel of Jesus. What he has done for us and what he is for us in dying on the cross for our sins. Let's take a moment as we end to look into the cross and see how this revelation of God to Moses is so clearly seen in the gospel. God is merciful. Have you contemplated this recently? He is the ultimate good and wisdom in the universe, and by his power he created everything with a word. His perfections are displayed in every sunset and in every white blood cell that fights disease in our bodies. Yet we live our lives rarely contemplating him. In light of his goodness and his power, we're rarely in awe of him, and we're hardly bothered by the fact that he is ignored by most everyone around us. If we look honestly, about how little we desire him, we can only cry out like Paul did at the end of his life, I am the chief of sinners. And because God is infinitely glorious and great and holy and good, the fact that we fail to respond to him in a worthy manner deserves a consequence equal to his character. We call this falling short of the glory of God. We call it sin. And the execution of God's justice against us is called the wrath of God. And he has to maintain this for him to be God. We should not be deceived. God is not mocked. What we sow, we shall also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap corruption. Here's the mercy of God in the gospel. But yet, what do we receive? We see in Isaiah 53 that Jesus was the one that was wounded for these transgressions, that Jesus was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray, each and every one of us to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him, being about Jesus, the iniquity of us all. We have received mercy, folks. We have not received what we deserve. Jeremiah in Lamentation said, who, who on earth should offer any complaint in view of his sins? Because we also see here that God is gracious. God is so gracious that the means by which God saves us comes completely from him. We are so undeserving. We are so unable. We are so blind by our transgressions and our sins that we cannot see God. We cannot perceive him. We cannot perceive him as good. So God in his grace opens our eyes by the power of the Holy Spirit with his gospel to see him in his goodness. Salvation is the 
purchase and provision of sight for the blind. John Piper says this. He says, God sent Christ into the world to die for our spiritual blindness, to pay its penalty, to absorb its wrath that it deserves, and provide a perfect and imputed righteousness for all of us who believe. This is the most beautiful display of God's glory that has ever been or ever will be. There's an there's end to the story that I began to tell about the sirens. There was another member, there's another person in mythology. His name is Jason. And again, if you know mythology, you understand this. He had a different approach to dealing with the sirens. Instead of sticking wax in his ears, instead of restraining himself to a mast, he found this other musician named Orpheus, a musician of incomparable talent, which when he played, this musician, when his music filled the air, it had an enchanting effect on everyone who heard it. There was not a lovelier or more beautiful sound in the entire world. Do you know what he did? He got this guy to come in his ship. And when they were sailing past the sirens, he had Orpheus begin to play his music. And when the time claimed, Jason declined the earplugs. He did not ask to be tied. He had no illusion about the strength of his will. Instead, he ordered Orpheus to play his most beautiful and alluring song. The sirens did not stand a chance. Jason overcame temptation with something better. May the music of the gospel so enchant us. May it so enrapture us when we hear of God's music and his beauty and his goodness towards us in light of our sin. May it so compel us that no other music even compares. And may we be changed into his likeness as our desires are changed from within. Let's pray. Lord, only you can do this. I'm asking God for your mercy in light of how we've not honored you, have not desired you. Father, we are most to be pitied. But God, you, you took all of that and put that on your son. God, let us see the truth of that so much to where we don't just know it as facts, but God, we are compelled in our heart to see your goodness and to see your glory and to desire you as our greatest good so that everything else pales in comparison to you. Amen.